Hello, welcome to New Books and Music, a podcast of the New Books Network. I'm Kristen Turner, and my guest today is Mark Katz, professor of music at UNC Chapel Hill. But for the purposes of our interview, more importantly, he's the founder and former director of Next Level, a cultural diplomacy program administered through the U.S. State Department. His new book about this project and the complexities of people-to-people exchanges is called Build, The Power of Hip-Hop Diplomacy in the Divided World. Thank you so much for joining me today, Mark. Thanks for having me. Um, Now, you are a hip-hop scholar, so I guess it makes sense if you're going to do a cultural diplomacy project that you would use hip-hop as the sort of culture part of that. But uh, perhaps as an academic, it's not so um, obvious why you would even get involved with cultural diplomacy to begin with. So I thought we could start with maybe if you could just tell us a little bit about uh, what Next Level is, how it got started, um, sort of, uh, you know, what is a residency, how does it work, all of that, just to, to give us all a starting place. Sure. Uh, so Next Level is the name of a cultural diplomacy program that is funded by the State Department, particularly the Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs, also known as ECA which is the uh, bureau within the State Department that funds all exchanges and all cultural programming. The Fulbright um, program is uh, their best known um, program in the bureau. And Next Level is in the tradition of programs that go back uh, for decades, but the the most uh, recognizable one would be what was uh, unofficially known as the Jazz Ambassadors Program. And that started in the 50s when the State Department began sending famous U.S. jazz artists like uh, Dizzy Gillespie, he was the first, and then um, Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington, and others around the world during the Cold War as representatives of this country. And the purpose of any kind of cultural diplomacy is to connect the uh, connect nations, connect different nations through the platform of culture. And that could be uh, visual art, it could be dance, it could be music, it could be food, uh, poetry, literature, and so on. And hip-hop diplomacy in particular is a form of cultural diplomacy in which hip-hop is that platform that is meant to connect people of different countries. And there's another term that is useful to know, which is people-to-people diplomacy. And that's a form of diplomacy that is different from what might be called official diplomacy, where it is official representatives of a country who interact. So ambassadors, diplomats, uh, ministers, and so on. So the people who connect, who connect through hip-hop diplomacy and any kind of people-to-people diplomacy are citizens who are not employees of the State Department. They're not government uh, workers. They're not foreign service officers. So Next Level is a program that has been around since 2014, and it sends teams of U.S. hip-hop artists representing different elements within hip-hop, rapping, dancing, DJing, beatboxing, graffiti art, And they go to different countries, particularly underserved communities within countries, for two-week residencies. And each artist runs a workshop 
in their perspective, uh, perspective, um, or I'm sorry, in their respective, uh, disciplines. And, um, at the end of the two weeks, everyone comes together and, and, uh, they mount a, uh, public performance and, uh, we leave behind equipment and, uh, uh, for the community to be able to continue their work. And, um, we continue the relationship afterwards. But uh, since 2014, we've now been to over 30 countries on six different continents. So how many um, residencies does that come out to? Is that 30 different residencies as well or more? Yes. Yes, that's right. Um, I I think it's 30 or 31. Um, Right now, um, I think Ethiopia is uh, the latest one. The most recent that has been completed was Mongolia. Um, There's a residency coming up in Ethiopia and then Peru and Bolivia um, and Nepal are filling out this cycle. So each cycle, uh, there are uh, five five to seven countries that we visit. And um, only occasionally do we go to more than one country during residency. So we've been to, I think, 32 countries and 31 residencies. So how are the countries chosen or the cities of residency? Is that up to next level or is that up to the State Department? Well, it's uh, both. In the end, it's the State Department's decision. But the the way it works now that we've done it uh, for several cycles is that the beginning of the cycle, um, the team of people who run next level and that was me and and uh, a small group of uh, managers would come up with a list of maybe 10 to 12 countries in different regions in the world and explain why we think it would be a good country to go to and uh, the criteria include you know, is there a robust um, hip-hop community um, are there um, you know, is this a country we haven't been to before? Um, are there connections we might make between this country and uh, uh, neighboring countries that we've been to? <coughs> um, and then um, in terms of the State Department, they have uh, a variety of, of interests. One uh, is um, coming from the uh, the embassies. So uh, the embassies might request a, a hip hop pro- uh, program. Um, so there are a lot of things going on. It's this kind of, a, um, you know, negotiation in a sense. We, we come up with some suggestions. Then the people that we work with at the State Department talk to um, uh, some people within, uh, they call them the cultural coordinators for each of the bureaus um, and the regional bureaus. So for example, there's the, the Northeast, uh, I'm sorry, the, the Middle East and um, North African Bureau, or there is the Western Hemisphere Bureau. So uh, there are some sort of ideological reasons. Is this a place where we can be, we can help uh, strengthen US uh, or the image of the US, their practical, reasons have has there been a lot of cultural programming in this country and then there are particular hip-hop reasons uh, is this a are there really uh, vibrant hip-hop scenes in this country um 
So once you start, or I guess when you're planning a residency and you're there, how do you identify who you're going to work with and who's going to be both part of the program from the American side um, and who is going to be participating from the host country's side? How does all that work? From the American side, we have an application process. And in fact, for our seventh cycle, what we call Next Level 7.0, we have just gotten all the applications in. We got, I can't remember exactly, but maybe about 150 applications. We're going to have 20 slots available. And so uh, we put out a call for applications. It's very competitive, and uh, word has gotten out that this is a, uh, you know, a strong program that uh, a lot of people have have recommended to others. And so we get applications and they have to explain things like what is their uh, educational philosophy. Uh, They have to provide work samples so we can see, uh, you know, their, their wrapping or their graffiti art or their beat making and so on. And then uh, there's a panel um, that uh, selects them mostly um, hip hop artists, but also some people, um, uh, some people from the State Department review those applications as well. So we pick, uh, we're doing that right now. And then um, then once we have all the countries selected, then we contact the, um, the embassies or consulates in that country. And we start there. Usually the, the diplomatic posts have local connections with NGOs, with schools, with performing arts organizations. And often they will suggest um, a number of potential partners that we might work with. And we do a, uh, an advanced trip where we go there and meet with these potential partners and uh, decide who we think we would uh, work best with. And then in terms of the residency, it's the local partner that puts out a call for participation on their side. So they'll put out things on social media or in we're in the regular media um, calling for it's usually young people between 15 and 25 to uh, see if they want to participate. And these programs are all free. They don't have to have any experience. They just have to be committed to showing up every day and, um, and um, having an interest in hip hop. So, you, um, it's interesting that you have such a large cohort of people wanting to participate because, as you point out, um, hip hop and diplomacy on the behalf of the U.S. government are not exactly the first um, pair of ideas that I would necessarily put together. I mean, you think about hip hop, there, there's a long history of sort of Uh, real critiques of the United States, U.S. policy. A lot of people who are involved in hip-hop are from marginalized communities here in the United States. And then, frankly, on the other side of the equation, that's often true um, in in the global hip-hop community. A lot of people who are part of that are also marginalized in their own countries. So, uh, you know, how... I am surprised that it's so popular. You know, what do hip-hop artists hear... Uh, you know, how, what's their reasoning for wanting to do this and how do they sort of deal with the, um, you know, the, the political ramifications of being part of a government program? It's a good question. And uh, there's no doubt that as far as I can tell, every 
hip-hop artist who has participated in Next Level has come in with some concerns, um, not necessarily about the program itself, but about just the fact that they are getting paid by the government to do this. And um, <coughs> and you know, no one goes into this, um, you know, without, you know, without having some questions and concerns. The reason why people do this, and I've interviewed maybe 150 people uh, for this book, and I asked them this question, and um, there are uh, what I call both um, internally motivated and externally motivated reasons that they sign up for this. So internally, um, it's how they serve themselves. So Next Level and, and programs like it offer something very unusual, which is a way to travel the world and get paid for it and to do it as an artist. For many artists of any type, and hip-hop artists are no exception, that is a dream, to be able to see the world and to, be, and to do it as an artist. There are very few opportunities for anyone to do that. This is one opportunity, and it's paid, and it, and it pays pretty well. Um, it's, so it's a way to travel. It's a way to travel as an artist. It's a way to connect with um, people around the world um, to f- find new sources of artistic inspiration. Um, so these are very powerful motivations. Another is representation. People feel very, very strongly about representing hip hop, about representing uh, their gender or their, uh, their region, their community. To the world. So these are some of the things that I call internal motivators. And then uh, the more outwardly directed or external motivators are about serving others. Um, a lot of the people I work with are activists and they feel like they can do good in the world through hip hop. And if they can do a project that brings them into contact with underserved communities around the world that might help budding hip-hop artists create careers that might allow young people to express themselves in constructive, powerful, healing ways. They want to do that. So um, this is really just an unusual uh, opportunity to be able to do all these things. Uh, So that doesn't mean that these artists don't, um, you know, wonder about what they're getting themselves into. And so the way they manage that and the way we, uh, we being the ones who run the program manage, manage it, is that we have to do this with integrity. We have to do this with our eyes wide open. We have to recognize the history of this country in terms of its oppression of its own people, particularly people of color, as well as its unwanted intervention in places around the world and be open about that. So um, it's a, you know, it's, it's tricky, but people feel like the people who do this feel like they can do this with and maintain their integrity. And if they can do that, they're not selling out. I guess uh, I asked it earlier, but then I realized we sort of got it. into other parts of the conversation, how, how did you get involved? Like, you know, 
so these are the artists and their sort of reasoning. What was your reasoning to get involved in this? Well, it came, I mean, there's a very specific reason, which is a rapper I know named Pierce Freelon told me about it and said, the State Department is putting out a call for applications to create this program. So, um, so I wasn't um, I wasn't commissioned to do this. They didn't uh, reach out to me. There was a call for um, proposals, so it was a grant application. And he told me about this, and I applied and got it. And he helped me with the uh, we we actually co-wrote the application. But the reason why this came up at all is that he and I and um, and other hip hop artists had been collaborating over the past few years here um, at UNC Chapel Hill um, in a number of courses that I had created, um, the art and culture of the DJ, beat making lab, rap lab. And so over the past several years, uh, starting in kind of maybe 2000, 2007, 2008, I'd been um, teaching hip hop classes and then I'd been co-teaching them with hip hop artists. And he was one of those artists. So um, I had been uh, researching hip hop uh, since about 2000, had been teaching it since a little bit after that, had been collaborating with hip hop communities um, since 2005 or so, um, or even before that. So this was an extension of my work, as, both as a scholar and as um, you know, a collaborator with the, you know, uh, with the hip hop community. Um, I think it's probably fair to say, certainly based on reading, uh, your book and, and we know each other and have for a while it, I think you probably share some of the concerns that the hip hop artists have, um, shared with you as well about how to be ethical in doing this. And, and a lot of what runs through the book is this sort of constant self-reflection, about how do how should the people in next level sort of exist as Americans in another country trying to work within this cultural diplomacy framework and how complicated that becomes when you're working in companies excuse me in countries that uh, sometimes have really long fraught histories with the U.S. where our current foreign policy uh, objectives and statements can um, really impact those countries in a negative way. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what makes a next level residency challenging in that way? There are so many challenging things, but one one sort of broad point I'll make is that the work that I've done with Next Level and in writing this book has made me realize that these issues are not at all unique to cultural diplomacy or hip hop diplomacy. I uh, I come to think about these issues of agency and complicity and American exceptionalism all the time, and they're relevant to every everyone, every American citizen. Um, and these uh, uh, power asymmetries, the uh, the differential between the U.S. and uh, other countries in terms of military power, economic power, and so on, is something that everyone should be concerned about. So. Um, uh, so the issues that I've I've come across aren't unique, but in terms of how to how to run a successful residency, uh, we we do a lot of work ahead of time to make that happen, and we have a list of principles that we try to that we abide by and and constantly reinforce, and I do print those out in the book, but they include things like 
show respect for others uh, when you're in other countries. Um, be be humble. Listen as much as you speak. Learn as much as you teach. Be self-aware. Recognize your privilege, and so on. So there are things that that really any good citizen of the world should uh, should try to follow. But they're particularly challenging for Americans because of our history, because of our embrace of our own exceptionalism. Um, and, you know, and there's a long history of American intervention that was uninvited uh, by the countries with, uh, in which we intervened. Uh, there is the ugly American stereotype, which has um, a certain amount of truth to it. So it's uh, one thing I say and, and that I tell the artists is I think at heart it's about being self-aware. It's about being aware of who you are, what you represent, what your power is, um, how your actions can be received by others, and um, self-awareness and self-reflection. I think those are key. Uh, you related in the book that a friend told you, um, I think it was actually the friend's father said to him, and then he says to you, there will never be a small white man in Africa. And I thought that was such a, a telling comment that, um, you know, you can never, uh, you, you can never get away from uh, the sort of the consequences of being white or being American in these um, in these spaces. And one of the things you do confront is not only are you an American, but you're also white working with a lot of black artists and, you know, coming from a privileged background as being you know, middle class and being part of a powerful academic institution. Can you talk a little bit about sort of how you see yourself working within all these power dynamics that you relate in the book? Yes, that that statement also really hit home. Uh, there will never be a small white man in Africa, uh, in part because I don't think of myself as powerful. Um, I don't, uh, I think, you know, just visually, you know, I'm not a big guy. I don't, you know, kind of uh, uh, make a lot of noise. I'm pretty modest. You know, I think of myself as not um, intimidating and I've thought of that, you know, in terms of being a professor, but um, but the reality is, uh, I do have power, and I even, you know, with the best of intentions, I can be, I can be intimidating, where I can send the wrong message, and um, this has been very important for me personally to realize because it goes against what I think about myself as a, you know kind of uh, not particularly powerful or imposing or intimidating person. Uh, what I had to um, really kind of uh, set aside is that kind of self-image and realize um, and not try to, not in the sense of trying to exude power, but realize that even so I am still powerful and I'm, and I represent power. I represent um, a powerful nation. And, um, and I have to remember that as I'm moving through these spaces in countries where, where the U S has, uh, has, um, intervened or, um, where there is a history of, of colonization, um, maybe not by the U S but by 
European countries where there, uh, you know, white people represent, um, you know, uh, unwanted foreign powers. And and actually, this um, <clears throat> occasionally I'm reminded of this when I was in uh, Congo. Um, I was uh, walking down the street and I just heard people shouting Mzungu at me, which I think literally means outsider or foreigner, but uh, particularly, you know, white man. And, um, and just my, my presence was unwanted. I, you know, because there's so many peacekeepers there that, that don't actually help. And there are NGOs that, that, uh, that are, you know, actually do a lot of damage and uh, another um, UNC professor, you know, Cherie Indelico, has written about this um, uh, in her book, Necessary Noise. So is actually her husband, Petna Indelico, uh, who is a Congolese filmmaker, who told me this story. So I, I give a lot of credit to Cherie and Petna and the people that I work with for helping me understand my privilege and understand my place and understand power relations. Um, you do tell some wonderful, really interesting stories and anecdotes to sort of illustrate your points. And, and one of them I thought was interesting, you know, you have sort of a series of stories like the one you just told that sort of illustrate how people in the countries that you visit are very aware of those power differentials. And that's something that they live with all the time. But then you have some stories where you sort of expect to confront that and then, that's not what happens. Like, I think there was one story about a man in El Salvador. Can you think of some times when you were surprised that that wasn't as much of an issue as you had anticipated? Yes, I think the uh, my time in El Salvador was was uh, telling, and uh, you know, for me, because I I had read up on El Salvador, and I as I do with every residency, I try to learn as much as I can about that country and particularly about uh, uh, the U.S. relations with that country. And the U.S. has done, you know, really done uh, terrible things in El Salvador, helping undermine the country, supporting a civil war, I mean, helping cover up and even train death squads. I mean, really terrible things that, that, uh, that, that any, that every U.S. citizen should be ashamed of uh, that their country did, and and we're certain. And El Salvador is not the only country. So um, when I went to El Salvador, I was kind of on guard. Am I going to? Are they going to say Gringo, go home, Yankee, go home? Um, but that wasn't the case. They were very welcoming and uh, really appreciated our presence there. And I really I pushed a bit on this, and you know, and uh, that was uh, that was very um, enlightening for me because. What I realized is that the people that I was working with, um, for the most part, cared much more about where their rent was going to come from, where their next meal was going to come from. If there were artists, whether they were they would be able to record that album they wanted. It's not like they were unaware of uh, politics, but as an academic, I can get so wrapped up in in things like uh, issues like uh, imperialism and um, uh, globalization that I forget about the realities of life. And so that was a, a great reminder to me about, you know, to, to try to understand people from their perspective, not to impose 
my expectations on them and try to meet them where they are. And then I also, it was also very interesting to learn in El Salvador and elsewhere that the U.S. Embassy's presence was a validating force for them because um, they would say this is true all over the world. They would say, oh, my parents think that I'm a, you know, because I'm into hip hop, I'm a thug or I just smoke weed all the time. I'm up to no good. But you coming in here with the U.S. Embassy and paying for this uh, this program, and and they see that uh, that they're that we're performing under the banner of the U.S. Embassy. That's actually gotten me a lot of respect with my family. So that was very unexpected too. So uh, this this power that we carry has so many so many unexpected consequences, and you just have to go in with your eyes open and and try to uh, try to listen to people and find out what their what their stories are. In addition to sort of the complexities that you dig into about, you know, what we've been talking about, these issues of power and balance and the, you know, history of the United States and how we have related to the world and how that impacts you. There's also the issue of this, the, the complexity of cultural diplomacy at all and sort of the tension between what musicians and people in hip hop want to accomplish and what art accomplishes and how the process of, of what it means to accomplish something in art and then what diplomats want and what the State Department wants and what does it mean to have an objective that you're trying to accomplish in diplomacy and how, you know, those things are uh, sometimes not aligned at all and, and, and what happens there. Can you talk a little bit about sort of that tension between the culture and the diplomacy part of cultural diplomacy? I think of of cultural diplomacy in terms of a very complex uh, Venn diagram. So imagine some overlapping circles, each circle representing the agenda of a different group or a constituency. So you have the State Department in in general or the U.S. government. And then you uh, might have a, even a different circle for the Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs, you have a circle that represents the U.S. artists, a circle that represents um, uh, the artists in the countries we visit, or you could have a circle that represents, um, you know, art in general. And the way I see it is that they 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 do overlap, but they certainly there are certainly large areas where they don't overlap. And our goal is to find the areas where they do overlap, and where they don't overlap is. Uh, in terms of outcomes, the, uh, the the goal of a lot of these programs from the State Department's standpoint or the embassy standpoint is, well, we want to improve the image of the U.S. And we want, um, to be blunt, we want people to hate us less. And we don't want people to bomb us or, or to, um, we don't want terrorists coming um, to attack us. Um, most artists, when they create a piece of art are not thinking about that as the desired outcome. They want to connect with people. They want to express themselves. Um, So there is that tension about outcomes. What do the artists want to uh, come out of this? What do uh, the diplomats and the, um, you know, the civil servants want to um, get out of this. So there is that tension. Um, uh, and some one way I describe it is between process and product. And 
And in a way, it's not totally fair because um, I, I wouldn't want to say that um, the state of form just cares about the end product and the artists only care about process. But that tends to be where things generate friction. So, for example, I talk about a concert that happened in Morocco that the ethnomusicologist Kendra Salwa told me about, where there were Americans and Moroccans performing together. And from the State Department standpoint, the embassy watching it, it was a success because you had these you had artists from different countries performing on the same stage. You had a cheering crowd. Um, you had lots of people watching it. It was, you know, thumbs up, you know, mission accomplished. The problem was that there was a lot of friction on stage. They didn't get to practice together. They didn't have time to rehearse. So they didn't really understand how each other operated on a stage and what uh, what constituted uh, sharing the stage, what they each thought about audience interaction. So that concert actually generated tension between the artists, which is not what you want. So um, the way to solve this, though, it's not in, inevitable that this should happen. And this, I took this as a lesson uh, that I incorporated next level, is that there should never be a concert in which people perform where they haven't met before, where they haven't had the chance to get to know each other. And no one should be <clears throat> required to perform together. So we will have we will have these meetups in you know uh, behind the scenes where uh, U.S. artists and local artists and wherever we visit get together and jam. And if it works great, maybe we'll continue. Um, if it doesn't, if they aren't clicking, the chemistry isn't there. We'll say, well, that was uh, you know thanks for you know getting together, but we would never push them to perform together. So. Um, so that's that's how we try to navigate uh, these different agendas. The last chapter of the book is called Build and Destroy, Hip-Hop, U.S. Diplomacy, and Islam. And it's a little different from the other chapters because you are focusing on one uh, particular aspect and one particular community that um, Next Level often works with. Um, and I was just wondering... You know, why did you uh, pull out that particular community? And, um, uh, you know, I, I don't know, what were your motivations for, for deciding that you needed to, to really hone in on that, on the Muslim community and, your, and Next Level's work in that community? Well, uh, what I realized early on is that the, um, the State Department was sending us uh, to, uh, particularly to countries that had majority Muslim uh, population. So, uh, just in the first in the first uh, cycle, we went to uh, Senegal and we went to Bangladesh. Uh, we also went to India, which is not a majority Muslim um, country, but I think has one of the largest Muslim populations in the world. Um, and uh, so, they were specifically sending us to to these countries that had large Muslim populations. And, and since, um, you know, since then we've gone to many more, I would say maybe, um, I don't know, a, a third or slightly more than a third of the countries we've gone to have Muslim majority con um, populations. So 
One is simply the fact that we kept going to uh, these uh, these countries. The other is simply that as I learned more about the history of hip hop diplomacy, that it really came to life after 9-11 and that it was um, uh, it, not always, but often specifically directed at improving relations between the U.S. and Muslim-majority countries. Um, and, um, and it's a fascinating history because um, a lot of what, what um, the U.S. is trying to do is to try to um, uh, kind of uh, repair damage that it itself has done. So the, um, uh, this country in the wake of 9-11 just um, did so much damage to um, to its relationship with uh, with uh, Muslim populations through um, you know through military interventions through torture um, and you know we uh, you know it, it's I think a fairly shameful part of our country's history is uh, is its um, Islamophobic streak and this has come up again in um, um, well, it comes up very often, but um, most strikingly with the uh, executive uh, order that President Trump uh, issued that was essentially a ban against uh, Muslims entering this country. So I guess I felt that I just couldn't ignore it. And it was just it was it was always uh, in the background if it, it wasn't in the foreground. And um, and I just was wanted to know more about what uh, the people in Indonesia or Tunisia or Algeria or Egypt or Bangladesh thought about um, about what we we're doing and what, if any, connection they saw between hip-hop and Islam. Well, you tell in the book that actually there is some really interesting intersections between hip-hop in America and Islam and the sort of early history of hip-hop. Do you, uh, do people that you work with, um, so I didn't know much about that, so that was interesting for me to learn with, about, but do you find that that's something that people that you work with in Muslim communities are aware of, or is that sort of, you know, maybe you could tell, talk a little bit about those connections and then how much that's um, widely known today? Sure, that's uh, a that's a, a complicated um, issue because the the history of hip hop in the U.S. is very much influenced by a particular uh, group um, within um, U.S. Uh, um, Islam, and that's um, the Nation of Islam. But in particular, what's known as the Five Percent Nation um, or the Five Percenters, and um, this is um, not the way that most Muslims practice Islam. So it is, um, it's quite a bit different. Um, and this particular, in many ways, not in, not in, not in every way, but it's a distinctive uh, practice uh, that is distinctive to the U.S. So uh, there are many um, hip hop artists that I know that I've worked with who are five percenters themselves. It's how they would uh, they might um, identify themselves. Um, but I remember talking to one um, rapper, really amazing rapper, who's also a five percenter, and asked him, you know, how would you feel about connecting with um, Muslims in other countries? And he was like, well, you know. 
I'd want to be careful because there are things that we do that uh, in the five percent nation that other Muslims don't. Uh, for example, people will use the use Allah as a name for themselves, whereas in other um, uh, traditions that would be considered offensive. And um, uh, one thing that this just there's an obvious point to be made here, which is that not all Muslims think alike. There and there are different sects, there are different traditions, there are different countries that have very different histories uh, uh, of Islam. And um, so we can't think of Islam as monolithic. So, um, but I will say that the State Department people that I worked with were largely or, or all unaware of this history in the US. Um, I don't know how well it's known outside the country. So um, it was always an interesting thing when we would have Muslim artists, and we do have Muslim uh, U.S. Muslim artists, how they would relate to Muslims in other countries. For the most part, I think the artists that we worked with um, were not five percenters. Um, and, um, and, but I would say all of the Muslim artists that we worked with felt very deeply connected to the uh, the communities that they worked with. Uh, there is um, one artist who who just wrote uh, beautifully to me about her experience in Bangladesh, which was her first experience in a Muslim majority country. She had never been in a place where everyone or pretty much everyone that she encountered was Muslim. She had never been to a country where uh, the call to prayer would be sounded five times a day. And she tells the story of, of waking up at five in the morning for the, the first um, cycle of prayers and never feeling as moved or as powerful or as connected to God as she did at this moment because she was in a place where everyone shared her faith. And she talked about, um, um, you know, her tears, you know, raining down on the prayer rug as she listened to the call for prayer in, in Dhaka, Bangladesh. So it's, uh, it's very complicated, but it's also, um, it can be very powerful, this connection that can be made between um, people who share a faith. You touched on it a bit in, in your answer that, um, or in your answers in the last couple minutes, that uh, the foreign policy of the United States has changed quite a bit since you started uh, Next Level or started working with Next Level. And, um, you know, the state, the even uh, just the number of people working in the State Department has changed. I mean, the, the department's much smaller now. It has very different kind of leadership, obviously. Our president is quite different from Barack Obama. Um, have you, uh, and, and you take that on in the book, you're very open about that you know, things have changed since you started. Have, can you talk a little bit about sort of how is it, what are the changes that you've noticed sort of both on our end in terms of working with the State Department and um, how they are, uh, how they're, how the State Department is functioning, but also um, how are, you know, do you see ch- changes and how people treat, um, treat you in another, uh, treat the delegations um, and residencies in other countries since uh, President Trump was elected? Well, I would say one of the surprising things is how little things have changed. And in part because um, we work with 
civil servants and foreign service officers uh, for the most part, rather than political appointees. And they are supposed to be nonpartisan, not bipartisan, but nonpartisan. They work, uh, they work for the country. They serve. They do serve the president and the secretary of state, who are obviously political figures. But their ultimate uh, service is to the country, and um, they take that very seriously. It's almost an an, uh, an oath that they will. Uh, that they will be nonpartisan. So the people that I work with, um, their attitudes towards um, the towards this program of next level have not changed because of who is um, uh, on the seventh floor in the uh, Secretary of State's office or uh, who's in the White House. Um, they have been just as supportive as they ever have. Um, now, where things have changed is um, uh, when we go overseas and the way people ask questions. And I remember um, when um, when Trump was elected uh, and uh, we would go to countries, sometimes people would almost, it would almost be a litmus test. They would say, they would just say, oh, you're American, Obama or Trump. <laughs> Try to get a sense of where, you know, where our allegiance uh, fell. Um, or stood, and um, or they would come out and say, you know, I love America. I love American TV, films. I love hip hop, but your government just is terrible, or your president is crazy. And um, so we got a, you know, especially in the Muslim majority countries, it's like, why do you, you know, why does your country do this to us? You know, why? What have we done to deserve this? And it was, uh, you know, and I noticed that, but it did. Um, for the most part, it did not affect their willingness to to work with us because we we may represent the country and its government, but really the way people see us is representing hip hop. And um, one interesting thing, uh, kind of unexpected um, point of solidarity, is around um, a resistance to Trump because a lot of hip hop artists. Um, don't like Trump and have been vocal about that. And in a lot of places we go to, they don't like Trump either. Uh, it's it's not universal. There have been places where people have said that they like Trump or admire him, but um, but there's been a, a an interesting uh, form of solidarity between the U.S. artists and the people that we work with around their their resistance um, to Trump. That's fascinating. So, um, so the State Department does not say, well, if someone asks you a political question, as part of that sort of nonpartisanship, they don't tell you to sort of keep, uh, not you particularly, but the people involved to keep their own political opinions to themselves as well? Or, or you know, because I would think that nonpartisanship would sort of extend to you as well. Um, well, not necessarily. I mean, it doesn't have to. And I feel, I do feel free um, unlike the uh, the State Department people, to say what I want about uh, about the government or about uh, our president, um, generally I avoid it because it's not productive. It's uh, it can be a distraction. If I'll, I mean, frankly, I don't want to talk about Trump. Uh, I want to talk about I want to talk about hip hop, or better yet, I want to see, I want to make it possible for people to make art. So. For the most part, people don't really want to get into that. 
but um, uh, what what we're told is that is that um, the artists should not feel like they have to speak on behalf of their government. They should just speak from their own perspective, whatever that might be. Now they do say that, and kind of encourage us to stay away from politics when we don't feel equipped to talk about it. So now, you know, people might say, well, what do you, you know, this doesn't happen often, but occasionally we we're always interviewed by local media and occasionally they'll say, well, um, what do you think about um, Tunisia? Or what do you think about Algeria? And, um, and they might say, well, what do you think about, uh, you know, the, the president? Um, and that's always kind of a trap. Never answer that question. Um, like their president. I mean, the thing is, we're just not well equipped to answer that question. So I was on national TV, a morning show in Algeria, and they asked me what I thought about Algeria. It wasn't a political question, but I talked about, um, you know, the musical traditions, the food, the art, and and how much I appreciated uh, their, their, you know, uh, hospitality. Um, there is just no particularly good reason for me to, I don't know, you know, bring up, um, you know, politics in that sense. Now, that doesn't mean we're we're censored or we can't talk about it. But for the most part, it's not part of our, it's, it's not part of the conversation that we, that we have or really want to have. Well, that does bring up another issue, which is, you know, you are coming into this new country. Um, you know, there's no way that you can become, you know, a sudden expert on Algeria or wherever. Do you ever find yourselves sort of getting plopped into um, local tensions or local conflicts that uh, you know very little bit about, but yet you find um, it's really important to the people that you're collaborating with that, uh, I don't know, that makes your um, the collaboration difficult or makes um, uh, your work richer or more challenging? I mean, do, or, or, or are you sort of, or are there ways that you can sidestep that? I mean, how, how does that all that work? Well, um, we can't always sidestep conflict. Um, and I talk about a few examples in the book where, where we just couldn't. We, we didn't know what we were getting into. And usually it's not so much about politics. It's usually about more local matters. So, for example, when we were in Uganda, we didn't, I didn't know this, but there, there are different factions of, of uh, rappers. One, uh, the Yuga Flow rappers who rhymed in English, and then the Luga Flow rappers who rhymed in um, local uh, languages. Um, and and they, there was a beef between them, a kind of uh, long, long, you know, simmering or not so, you know, some maybe boiling over occasionally. And there were representatives from both factions in the workshops, and we didn't know this. Um, now, this turned out really well because part of the problem was that these groups wouldn't interact with each other. Um, our presence gave them an opportunity or an excuse to be in the same space. And I asked someone about this once I learned about this conflict and he said, yeah, you know, um, we're almost never together, but this has been a great opportunity. And we realized actually we're brothers. We haven't, we shouldn't be fighting. You know, we can, we can get along and, um, so this was a great example of where our presence kind of unwittingly helped uh, transform conflict. 
Um, but there are other times when we can generate conflict. And um, I give the example of going to Croatia where um, there was some um, tensions between, I would, I guess I would call it the underground uh, dance scene and the more commercial dance scene. And that uh, the um, organization we worked with was, was a professional uh, dance studio that, um, that focused on ballet and contemporary um, dance and with a little bit of hip hop. And the underground hip hop artists did not like that we were working with them because um, they, uh, they regarded them as commercial or inauthentic and didn't like that they were getting all the embassy's resources the problem is there was no um, no other studio that we could have worked with. So we did our best to navigate this. And we spent a lot of time working with the underground artists. And um, and I think in the end, it, it worked out uh, fairly well. But I know that there, that there are people who didn't show up who would have come to the workshops um, if, it, if we weren't working with this studio, maybe people who didn't, who wouldn't come to the concert because of that. So that was... Uh, uh, that was unavoidable. We did our best, but there are times that that our presence actually helps generate conflict as well. So um, you are no longer the director of Next Level, and you've written this book now. So um, are you going to continue working with this project? Or are you going to move on to other things um, and let Next Level, uh, you know, grow without you? What, where do you? What is your next move? Well, Next Level is growing without me as director, but I'm still involved. Uh, so um, I had a, uh, I, I tried to do this very intentionally where I didn't just say, okay, I'm done. Um, let someone else figure out how to do this. But I worked with people that um, I had been working with for uh, years and bring them into the administration of it and um, taking on Junius Brickhouse, uh, who is a wonderful artist and educator and leader um, as an associate director, then being co-directors with him and then and then stepping down and uh, after which he became director. So I stay in touch because I think I can, well, they want me to uh, because just of my institutional memory and they'll ask, well, you know, has this happened before? What happened when we did this or what happened in El Salvador? Um, and, um, so my position now is where I'm, I guess I'm in an advisor and I go on a few trips a year where what I'll do is my new role is both as an advisor and a kind of liaison with embassies because I have a decent amount of experience now talking with, um, you know, diplomats and foreign service officers, but I also bring in my, uh, my role as a professor. Um, I'm the only professor represented, um, in, um, in, uh, next level and uh, particularly the uh, the administration of it. So I give lectures on the history of hip hop diplomacy. Um, so I'm involved, but uh, but next level under um, uh, Junius is is evolving in some in some great ways. Uh, he's been instituting some really interesting uh, refinements and innovations that I'm not a part of, but I really appreciate. So I would say. Um, I'm involved as much as uh, either party wants us to be involved. Um, so I will uh, I will continue to be involved because I love this program. And I'm very committed to it, but I'm not involved in um, in any um, important decision making, and that's really uh, what uh, Junius is doing. 
Um, in terms of, of what's next, um, I always have way too many projects going on at the same time. One is a, a long overdue book for Oxford University Press um, for their um, very short introduction series. And this is going to be on music and technology. So um, it was due already. I'm going to try to finish it this year. So that's one thing I need to get off my plate. Um, but I'm I'm very interested in future projects that that connect um, or that focus on art and the social good. And, um, and this will certainly involve hip hop. Um, but, um, you know, I've done projects uh, uh, separate from next level that connected hip hop and public health, um, hip hop and linguistics. So I want to continue to, uh, to explore the ways that art in general and hip hop in particular can, um, you know, just to be kind of, um, uh, really Pollyannish, uh, do good in the world. Well, thank you very much for taking time to talk to me today. Um, and uh, my name's Kristen Turner. This is the New Books in Music, a podcast of the New Books Network. And we've been talking to Mark Katz about his new book from Oxford University Press, Build the Power of Hip Hop Diplomacy in a Divided World. <laughs>